Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We're glad to be with you. And today we're Zooming. We're having a Zoom meeting. You guys probably heard of that, right? Zoom? It's a new thing. Like, uh, just people are just beginning to discover it. That's obviously tongue-in-cheek. It's uh, probably the... Uh, I mean, it's just amazing how Zoom went from being something that maybe just a few people knew about who maybe had to meet across the country for business is something that everybody is using for everything. So I don't know if that's uh, you know, a good thing, but anyway, we're using it <laughs> and, and we're here with you today. But, uh, but uh, uh, just allow me to introduce myself. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I've been a real estate investor. I've been a uh, pro- uh, professor of philosophy. I've uh, been a contractor, home improvement contractor. I've done, I've done some different things. And I'm a writer. I've written some books. Anyway, enough about me. Uh, Glenn, tell us about yourself and tell us a little bit about what you're going to be up to. Uh, even though people will get this after the fact, there probably is going to be some recordings and stuff like that that people can can get to. So anyway, tell us. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of early modern European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And in a few days, I will be in Moscow, Idaho, uh, sometimes known as either the New Jerusalem or the Promised Land. (laughs) And uh, there I will be speaking at New St. Andrews for um, a uh, Reformation lecture. I will be speaking on uh, the origins of Presbyterian polity, that is to say, the Presbyterian system of church government, where it comes from, because pretty much everybody gets that one wrong. <laughs> I'll also be doing a Reformation um, uh, banquet, and I will be uh, speaking a little bit after dinner there uh, on uh, the marriages of the Reformers. Oh, nice. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, knowing those guys, everything's going to be recorded and will probably be on YouTube or some other platform. So if you're interested in learning about what uh, Glenn has uh, had to say, then you can, I, I think that probably going to either uh, New St. Andrews College or Canon Press, those would be the two places I think that would be most likely to have something posted. And you've got a book that's coming out and uh, I imagine you're going to be out there signing it. I don't actually know if they're going to have copies yet, although they're telling me it will probably be in people's hands somewhere around election day, which will already have come and gone by the time this is broadcast. I did find out something really interesting from a friend of mine who pre-ordered it, however. They are giving with this, they're on pre-orders, sorry, it's too late for this now, I guess, but um, they're giving, they're sending him a copy of a treatise by Theodore Beza. Beza was Calvin's successor at Geneva, and it's a treatise on plague. Yeah, there you go. Well, that that's right up your alley, Glenn. Ab- absolutely <laughs> delighted. <laughs> if it if it's not resistance, it's plague. That's right. <laughs> well, great stuff. Well, we're glad for you, Glenn, and we hope you have a great time out there. I'm, I'm sure you will. And uh, Tom, Tom, tell us about yourself, and it's your day. So why don't you tell us about a class you're offering and then just take us right into the subject for the day. Okay, but before I do, Glenn, we do need an updated handbook on the plague. We do need an update on, um, on, and, uh, on how to uh, live out the faith under those conditions. So it might be right time. Might um, be the right time to do that. <laughs> 
Um, Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Ford and Conwell Theological Seminary. I also teach philosophy and other things at many other places. Um, but one of the things that I am up to uh, soon, and actually even when this posts, um, there will still be a few days to sign up since we pushed the date um, to give people a little more time to uh, consider the class, is the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network University. They have uh, offered classes uh, with ins various instructors. Um, they, they gave me an opportunity to uh, put one out there. So it's gonna be one looking at uh, Christianity and theology and culture, um, but in, in, from the perspective of, of kind of what are the foundations um, in, in theological analysis, when we go about thinking Christianly about the trends that are around, the way that they're impacting things, and the way that our church is, is to confront them. Um, so the, the sort of uh, the, the, the side tag for that is something I'm also pondering for, for a book as well. It's sort of a, a battle manual um, for the baptized. And uh, so what does it mean to go to war with uh, the various gods competing for territory that belongs to the one true God, if you will? That sounds great. That sounds great. Good stuff. Well, uh, anyway, uh, people can sign up for your class, uh, you know, at the Fight, Life Feast Network, right? That's right. Correct. Okay. So what are we talking about today, Tom? Okay. So um, curiosity. <laughs> mm, it killed um, the cat, didn't it? That's right. It did kill the cat. Um, and so we're looking, we're, we're looking maybe at uh, virtue and vice um, at maybe as a, as a larger category, and then studiousness and curiosity, um, the virtue of studiousness, the vice of curiosity. Um, basically from the perspective of, of reflections from some different people throughout uh, Christian theological uh, history, like maybe some insight from Augustine, from Aquinas. Um, I'm actually riffing off of an article by my doctor father, the late John Webster. He wrote an excellent essay, which was sort of summarizing a lot of this content um, on and sort of the Christian understanding of theological intelligence um, and the, the virtues that that are attached to it, and then the vices that are temptations for it. Um, and so I want to maybe begin with just the issue of curiosity. There's a kind of... You know, before you, before you get into it, this is, a, this is an angle of vision that I don't know anyone has today. I think most people think that there's no such thing as, you know, curiosity in a bad sense. That's right. And that, that, that plays right into, we tend to think of curiosity in, in the ways in which it, it's almost a virtue rather than a vice. And so I, I guess maybe one of the things to keep in mind as we kind of flesh this out is to think maybe of some of the, the ways we think of it in a good sense. I'll, I'll give an example. Um, think of uh, C.S. Lewis as the magician's nephew. You know, should Diggory have rung the bell of Charn? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and the great line in that is make your choice adventurous. Um, stranger, strike the bell and buy the danger or wonder till it drives you mad. What will have followed uh -huh. if you had? Um, and so we tend to see that as the challenge to to pursue the curious, if you will, um, something that, that we're curious about, but we're not sure whether we do. Should we take the risk and do it? But I think Lewis is on to something. Um, Curiosity may not be the term that theologians were criticizing when they talked of curiosity. 
Um, he's more talking about almost that sense of wonder and enchantment that is filled with probably the virtue of what theologians called true studiousness, right? The, the way in which the desire and appetite to know is ingredient in what it means to be a create creature in God's image. And so because of that, um, knowledge just for, for maybe pragmatic or practical reasons um, is not the full picture of, of why it is we know things. And utilitarian knowing, just merely as a means to some other purpose um, that, that kind of helps me negotiate my everyday life. Um, I think what Lewis is on to is that there is something that connects everything to a full wondrous vision. And if we close the door too soon, we end up stifling um, all the riches and wonders that we can have as creatures in knowing the plushness of creation and, of course, the creator. I think that's what Lewis is on to. Um, and I think that's what I think philosophers, when they talk about the, you know, that first step in wonder, it's like the child, I mean, everything a child experiences for the first time. I mean, watch its gestures and its face. It starts kicking and laughing. And why? Because it's, it, it realizes it's, it, it has the gift of being and it's confronting all of this stuff new, fresh for the first time. And I think what Lewis is on to is that that doesn't stop because of the, the infiniteness of the creator. There is this plenitude bursting in creation that should continuously drive and order our appetite. But curiosity as a vice is something I think very different, and I'll kind of kind of unpack that. Uh, I don't know if you guys want to uh, say anything just in relationship to that way of making a distinction or not. Any thoughts, Glenn? I have a couple. Oh, I'm waiting for the Augustine quote. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess, you know, like, uh, there are things that uh, I think you could be curious about that uh, are the, you know, sort of the expression of your depravity. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, how, how, how many ways are there to skin a cat? I mean, you're, you know, the, the whole idea, you know, particularly if you're talking about doing it while it's alive, right? Just to see what would happen. Um, that kind of curiosity reveals something, you know, uh, malicious about the person who entertains the, the question. So I guess maybe that's one way of thinking about it, but maybe that's not what, the, what, what you're getting at. Um, well, I think that's a part of it, definitely. Uh, Glenn, do you have that quote at hand? Because I think it's worth well, maybe starting from that. Yeah, well, <laughs> someone um, asked Augustine once. Uh, they, they, in, in, in Augustine's day, most people believed that the universe was eternal. It never had a beginning. Mm -hmm. And so one of the attacks that the pagans leveled against Christians that somebody confronted Augustine with was, for all of eternity prior to creation, what was God doing? And his answer was, he was preparing hell for the curious. <laughs> right. that's it. And, and I think that's the sense in which uh, John Webster is, is using curious in that older sense of the word for um, delving into territory we're not permitted to, to, to delve. And uh, I, I'm going to kind of build that case out the way kind of Webster does, drawing off of these traditions a bit. Well, um, before you mm -hmm. jump in there, but that, but, but that very notion, getting back to this idea that, that people don't have any sense 
that curiosity could have a downside or actually be, you know, you know, evil or uh, an expression of the fallen nature of a person. Um, that the very idea that there could be, you know, sort of spheres of of reality that are off limits to us. Yeah. Just a, a, it's an offense. It's an offense to the intellect, to the pride, to yes. person, you know our pride, that kind of thing. And yeah. and it's an idea that that I think needs to come back, but it's something that hasn't been, you know, you know, presented with any seriousness for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and along with that, you can, you know, you look at, um, you know, your analogy of skinning the cat, you know, there, there are any number of ways in which our, our depravity can really lead to, yeah, curiosity combined with the can lead to very, very bad places. Just put it that way. Yeah, and 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 that's where I, I that's where I think the theologians were very attentive, right? Yeah. To, to to that theme. And so uh, Webster kind of starts the article out with kind of um, just he's he is discussing it in the content text of Christian theological intelligence, but he draws a lot of parallels to knowing in any sense of the word. Um, and so he, what he does is he gives a sort of starts with a description of kind of what is the what is this what is the metaphysical and spiritual context in which um, our our intelligent activity takes place. Um, and, and so he's going to for, describe it firstly, you know, from the perspective of Christians and, and the kind of struggle therein. the kind of um, and, and really he talks about. Um, Christian theological intelligence or Christian intelligence period um, takes place. It, it's exercised in a spiritual situation that is a conflict between um, the virtue of studiousness and the, the vice of curiosity. That's sort of how he sets it up. And he, he kind of fleshes it out. He says, like all human intellectual acts, they take place in this economy of God's reconciling grace in which ignorance of in opposition to God, idolatry in the darkened mind, are being overcome by the instruction of word and spirit, right? So here's the, the fuller Christian vision. But then he says sort of the, the reconciliation of reason is at one and the same time beyond um, um, contest, but it's also unfinished. In other words, in the one hand, Jesus Christ has come. He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? The word is sufficient. Um, once un but once uttered, it doesn't remove the need for the intelligence to learn and to appropriate the word's inexhaustible fullness. Um, and that's the point of the spirit of truth has come to guide us into all of the truth, right? So Christians don't just have divine revelation and then it's a completed thing, and they don't have to learn anymore. Matter of fact, it's the, it's the engine which starts a new principle in the Christian to start that wonder process all over again, right? It activates the reason and intelligence. And so one of the things he wants to contrast um, between is, is the difference between what it means to be, to use one's intelligence and reason in a way that fulfills its nature and vocation, um, in contrast to this notion that the reason in, in intelligence is nothing more than a, a, um, an act of the will, that it's nothing more than a volitional act, 
rather than having a distinct purpose in God's purposes. And I think that's sort of a criticism of those people who tend to think because the will is fallen, um, there is no, there's nothing that the mind or learning things can actually contribute to our understanding of God. And so we just need to basically re, restate what Scripture says rather than thinking through Scripture to, to become so immersed in the mind of Christ that we are, we are reading reality in fresh and new ways in that light. Now, there are a couple of things that come to mind when you mention that, Tom. Uh, mm-hmm. One is, uh, you know, uh, the sort of thing that you hear sometimes uh, people say when Junior goes off to seminary. Yeah. You know, and it's, <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, you know, there are two, two, two sorts of, th- of things that, you know, kind of are anti-intellectual in character, but they have a different sort of different, you know, sort of ways of it being expressed. So mm-hmm. uh, one is, well, my cousin Bobby, he went to that <laughs> same seminary and he came out an atheist, you know, so you got that. Yeah. And then you got the idea, well, you know, uh, you know, the, the apostles didn't need that kind of learning, uh, yeah. you know, and my, my aunt Susie, she's, she knows the Bible backwards and forwards. She doesn't, she yeah. doesn't need to, to have any fancy education. So, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's ways in which this sort of, uh, you know, uh, concern or, or uh, perhaps maybe wounded pride gets expressed yeah. when people uh, discourage you from study. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think right there, it's very, it's a very important. There's a few points in there that I think are worth addressing in some sense. Um, one is sometimes people are are correct. You send someone off, and they come back. You know, you know, they 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 go off. You know, a child raised into raised in the church, they come back as a you know a militant. You know, leftist soldier ready to sling the head off of the grandparents. So I mean, it, it, it yeah, does and I've, I've seen them. I've seen them go. To, <laughs> yeah. Go to Christian colleges and come back that way. <laughs> that way. And, and I, think, I think what you have going on here is Christian colleges, in many cases of the word, are not virtue instillers. They're vice instillers. And, and they're, they're a good characterization of where this is going. You know, they, they send you off to basically become curious, um, right, rather than um, cultivate um, the kind of virtues that fulfill the, your, your nature's through grace and allow them to, to enact themselves to their fullest potential, ultimately partaking of, of the life of God and, and community in that light. Um, so, so yeah, there is a, there's a valid concern. I think the concern is, is however placed in the wrong place. It's placed in the intellect and in, in academic knowledge rather than the fact that the, the, the appetites of desire um, are not being converted. Um, and this is one of the points of why Webster is saying, and he's drawing off Augustine and Aquinas and the Western tradition in light of St. Paul and Christ, is that this is why the, the first context of understanding the intellectual life and vocation, yes, we'll talk about its creaturely aspects and vocation, but also the fact that it is taking place in this context where it needs to be converted and reordered. And so the intellect, when it's carrying itself out the right way, is cultivating those virtues given by the truth of Christ and the Spirit, creating a community of cultivating those virtues um, in such a way 
that um, the, the human is in the process of being weaned off of those false gods and idols. This is the battle plan. And then their loves and their, their insights so ordered the right way towards gods and creatures um, that they are not in those unhealthy relationships of curiosity, but are actually living in the proper relation you're supposed to have with, with the rest of creation. So that's the first thing. I think in many cases, even Christian colleges have lost the spiritual context that uh, proper virtuous learning um, is to be carried out in, in this fuller spiritual vision that we are to be putting off. We can't separate it from true religion. We can't separate it from putting off vice, putting on virtue. Um, yeah, I, I had, a, I had a, a, a friend years ago who was a, the pastor of a, of a church that was a, a college church on, a Christian, on, a, on the campus of a Christian college. And I remember him one time saying he, he likened some of the professors at the school to insects who implant their eggs in in the bodies of their victims. And so, you know, the these these eggs, you know, hatch eventually and consume the person from the inside out. Interesting. I, I think he was quite frustrated with <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> with with having the Christian faith undermined by ostensibly Christian faculty. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There are multiple things that this is just sort of that that this is is hitting me on. Uh, just one observation though. Um this isn't entirely a new problem. Yeah. If you go right. back to the medieval universities, the first universities, there were a bunch of poets that were known as the Goliards. Mm. Um, Goliath, actually. <laughs> they've got uh, a whole genre of um, medieval poetry called Goliardic verse. They were songs. Hmm. And um, they featured primarily wine, women, and song. I mean, uh, probably the best known of them uh, was translated into English as, and I quote, in an alehouse for to die is my resolution. Let wine to my lips be nigh at life's dissolution. That would make the angels cry with glad elocution. Grant drunkard, God on high, grace and absolution. <laughs> I mean, th th this, is, this is not a new concept. Right. But, but the, to, to, uh, I'm, I'm teaching medieval universities right now, so that's kind of on my mind. Um, <laughs> but I'm also reading some works by theologians uh, that don't really, ex there are reasons for this having to do with other things I'm studying at the moment, but they don't really accept the authority of scripture. They don't accept biblical authors, um, things like that. And I find myself, as I'm reading these things, I find myself wondering on some level, what is what's the motivation here? Um, is it strictly, purely intellectual curiosity that says that, you know, we need to probe this, we can't accept it at face value, um, that sort of thing? Um, you know, the text evolves over time and so on. And, you know, I can understand some of the intellectual arguments in some specific cases where, the, where this is being presented. But I find myself wondering... Given how often, even in Christian schools, you get people who believe that it is their intellectual duty to undermine or to question 
foundational elements of the faith, where is that coming from? And is it actually, if you will, a healthy curiosity that got them there? Right. Yeah, I kind of liken it to there's certain things that in any, in any uh, endeavor, uh, study, you know, any, any intellectual discipline, are, there are certain things that are givens. So if I'm, if I'm studying geology, mm-hmm. you know, then, you know, sort of the, the, the ground and the planet and all the, the you know, layers of rock are givens. <laughs> In other words, I don't, I don't spend a lot of my time trying to prove that they exist. I don't spend a lot of time, uh, you know, trying to defend their existence. I don't spend any time trying to sort of entertain the idea that maybe this all is illusory and you know in other words there are certain things that are givens like if i if i'm in in a conversation with with you guys um i don't think that you're projections of my mind although (laughs) it would be hard for me to demonstrate to in any way that would you know remove all doubt that you're not and that's obviously what modern philosophy demonstrates is that if you get into the kind of skepticism really know a thing yeah. and uh, and it seems to me that there there is some kind of something perverse at work when we have um, people who are being paid by the church uh, in some way even if they're in you know a seminary environment undermining the very thing that we're all supposed to be interested in knowing more about <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm saying anyway the just what, well, you, what you said brought, brought that to mind. Well, and I'm going to get back to that because I think this is one of the things that comes out. And I hope I could find the quote in, in, in the material I prepped a bit where it talks about almost this notion of, of trying to be in the know, the elite, the trends, um, is part of this, this kind of vice of curiosity. Um, and it is a part of our depravity. We'll, 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 get, to, we'll get to that the way he kind of presents it. Um, so, so virtue the way he kind of simply sets it out is really something that is consonant with our, you know, the good creaturely reality that we are. So it would be those, those habits of action on that, maybe on the creaturely level that allow for the positive potential we're endowed with to be realized through the gift of being an agent, right? As a creature. Um, And then spiritually, of course, um, Oftentimes, I know in the Protestant world, because we like to talk of imputation of righteousness, God does it all, we kind of are sheer gift. We oftentimes act like God does, you know, God does everything to the point you do nothing, so you're not saved unto, you know, um, as they say, good works, and to doing, living out a righteous life, and, or fulfilling your creaturely natures, for that matter. Um, and, and that's not the case. I mean, the Spirit's leading us, guiding us into truth is that process by which we're weaned off of those vices and cultivating that new, the gift of new life, practices, habits, um, enactments that truthfully exhibit who we are in Christ. So it isn't works versus grace. This is grace unfolding um, in the full parameters of its, of its gift into the redemption of, of creaturely things. Um, and so, but vice is always dependent on in a perversion distortion of a virtue. So it lacks the positive independent reality. So it depends on a virtue to which it is ultimately opposed. So it's a misapplication, a sinful use of our natural powers, if you will, right? So take human sexuality, right? 
um, it's fulfillment and committed lifelong marriage to, to one person of the opposite sex. Um, a vice is anything that takes that and, and applies it to something. It's not ordained and created to, to, to uh, find its fulfillment. Um, you could do, do this with the intellect as well. So the vice of curiosity is basically to be looked at by looking at its basis, dependence on, and then perversion of the virtue of studiousness. Um, and so studiousness, I, uh, the way Webster and some of the different theologians of the traditioning are using it, would include, I believe, what Lewis was up to as, as what we would now call curiosity. Um, and so, um, but, but uh, you know, maybe I'll give a few things to kind of flesh that out a bit. So he says the, the Christian prohibition of curiosity and is sort of a contempt for reason um, in, in some sense of the word. Um, it, it always sees reason basically as, um, well, well, let me back that up. Oftentimes, the way we're presented with the vice of curiosity even in Christian circles, is that we look at a, it as a sort of contempt we should have for reason as always being nothing more than the instrument of a fallen will. You know, reason is the devil's whore, as Luther put it. Um, and so he wants to kind of move away from that um, and, and look at what, what classically the Christian prohibition of curiosity was about. Um, so this is not a position that all reason is basically will at its root. Um, the desire to know is, is something very different. So curiosity is not nature, but defect. It's the wickedness of intelligence. It's complicity in going where it shouldn't, right? So it, idolatry, vanity, lying, um, these are things that um, try to overwhelm and replace um, the vocation and nature of creaturely reason. So, so I, what I'm hearing you say then is that if I spend my time trying to figure out how to deceive somebody, if I'm curious to know the best strategy, we're talking about an exercise of reason that's illegitimate. That's right. That would be in vice. And, and idolatry is similar. I mean, whether it's probing into things we're not supposed to, right, the wrong kind of speculation, um, um, not, you know, or you think of the, you know, the issue in the garden, right? It's not that we don't have the intelligence to, to know good and evil, but that we had a prohibition, right? It's, it's probing into something that we're, we're not meant to probe. It's, 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 it's pushing beyond the, the commanded limit, if you will. And then also in terms of, of um, so the, the different um, vices connected to it, it, it's a way of gratifying and being satisfied in our self-sufficiency um, in a perverted kind of way. Um, I, I've, got, I've got a wrinkle here, and maybe, maybe this isn't the right time to, to deal with it. And if it's not, we can kick it to the end mm -hmm. of the discussion. Mm -hmm. But um, we have places... Uh, in scripture where we see people behaving shrewdly. Yeah. In, a, in other words, we have people, well, in fact, we got, you know, the story of the unjust steward where, where Jesus actually commends the guy and says, this yeah. guy's pretty sharp. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you need to be as wise as, as uh, serpents, yeah. but innocent as doves. Yeah. Now, now how can you be wise as a serpent 
if you don't have a kind of capacity to imagine, you, you know what I'm getting at, behaving in a way that's not entirely, uh, I don't know, innocent on the surface. So yeah. like when you, think, when you think about the story of the unjust steward, this is what always throws people in the story, is that you got a guy who behaves very shrewdly. He's, he's lost his job. He's been fired. I don't know why the, the guy who fired him just didn't say, you're done right now, go away. But he gives him some time to wrap up affairs, I guess. And then the guy uses that extra time to essentially cancel portions of the debt that's owed to his master. And because he does that, when he's you know finally on his own, he's got all these people who are happy that he helped them out. Now, Jesus, in his response, says, you know, in terms of his interpretation of this, he says, or let me put it back. Let me step back. The 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 guy who fired the unjust steward uh, commends him in the story. He says, "You were pretty sharp, right there, buddy. <laughs> that was pretty. That was pretty savvy." Uh, and then Jesus says, "You know, the uh, the children of this world are wiser than the children of light uh, because uh, you know you know." And then he presents the story as an example of how that could be the case. And then he says, "Use your." Use your wealth in, in a similar way to uh, essentially make friends on earth and be welcomed into eternal habitations. Now, this is a very difficult. Yeah, yeah, uh, sure. It's a very difficult parable. But what comes to my mind is I've known people, and I've actually had this argument presented to me. Uh, I've known people who are just so uh, innocent that they're just patsies. They're just easy marks. And then I, I've had other people who say, you know, because they've known some of those people, well, you know, you need to do a little bit, uh, you need to behave a little bit, uh, uh, you know, you need to put, you, you need to not be so scrupulous. You, you need yeah, to go out sure. and have a little fun, do a little, you know, sin a little bit, not get crazy, so that you become a little more sort of savvy when it comes to worldly, you know, you know conducting yourself in the world. Hmm. So what, 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 what would say... You know, John Webster or Augustine say to that, and and I'm I'm not trying to be like trying no, to, sure, to stump sure. you. It's just this just mm-hmm. kind of comes to yeah. mind. I mean, things that come to mind, um, and 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 maybe some of those other things will come out even when we unpack some of the other stuff. But I mean, just kind of uh, my initial thoughts on that would be, um, there is a kind, there is a kind of spiritual naivety, and then a spiritual wisdom. Um, that are distinct. Um, you think of, you know, um, you know, the, you know, Old Testament, you know, the, the son deceiving the other by putting fur, you know, right. hairy arms on and talking when they're blind. I mean, this kind of sense that my sons aren't going to do me wrong. Um, this kind, you know, this, this kind of uh, innocent naivety. Um, and I don't think that kind of, um, that kind of knowing, if you will, is the full sense of, of biblical knowing, because I think, I think what scripture is talking about, and this is what I think Webster talks about, the wider spiritual context of, of the intellectual vocation, is that it is a process of being weaned off of sin and into the light, if you will. So it's familiar with idolatry, pride, and the like. So it's a kind of knowing that is, is placed before the holy, if you will, um, this is why, I mean, he's going to get to like Augustine in a moment is 
just merely knowing creaturely things for their own sake, you can know things about them, but there's a form of curiosity there that is separated from studiousness, which will see them in their full eternal light. And this is why, I mean, Augustine would call all knowledge that is basically eating the earth, if you will, that was his term, it is basically this way in which we are indulging illusory knowing. And I think Christians can be guilty of that because they, they are almost blinded in, in their kind of maybe their naivety that they aren't disgustfully sinful like everyone else to the point they don't understand how sin is at work in them in those levels that I think a true Christian intellectual endeavor and vocation would exhibit at some point. Because it is a knowing all things, a learning um, that is not ignorant of it, this being part of the process of conversion and renewal. And I think it's a conversion and renewal aspect that would, would, would help the Christian be able to understand their depravity and vices in a way that gives them a certain wisdom to know that it can be, it can show up everywhere. Yeah. A, couple of, a couple of ideas that are coming to me, and I'm, I'm anticipating to some extent where you're probably going to end up here <laughs> with Augustine. And that's one of the things we have to keep in mind throughout all of this, and I've been thinking about it right from the start, is the privative nature of evil, which yeah. is to say that evil is not a force in and of itself. Um, you know, when people say, did God create evil? No, because evil does not exist. It does not have any ontological status because what evil is, is a lack. It's an absence. Yeah. And so when you, when you take that idea and then apply it to studiousness, proper studiousness, when it is weaned from its, or when it is taken, moved away from its proper function, its proper end, yeah. you get curiosity. Yeah. You know, when you, you know, in all cases, what we're doing is we're taking something that is, in fact, a virtue and converting it to a vice. Yes. Because we are, we are applying it wrong. We're taking it in the wrong direction. Lewis points out in The Great Divorce that the greatest virtues become the greatest vices when they go bad. You know, and so that's, you know, that, that's one of the kinds of things we're looking at here. Yes. Um, the other thing, though, that, that came to mind is when you talk about knowledge in, you know, proper knowledge is not knowledge of the thing in and of itself. It's knowledge of the thing in relationship to God, in relationship to the whole. Uh, we're back to the thing that I keep going to, uh, the difference between fact and meaning. Yeah. That we're in a world of facts that is completely devoid of meaning, or at least yeah. what the culture is telling us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is so the the proper kind of knowing is the kind of knowing that brings understanding or meaning to things rather than just knowledge of fact. Yeah. And, and that's why I love Augustine's term eating the earth. He says it's basically being obsessed with the sign, the signe, but not the race, the thing in its relation to the divine and ultimately pointing to it as well. Um, and this is not sort of the pan-everythingism, that everything, therefore, it, the, the only significance it has is because it's related to God. No, but God is the full light to see its full dignity, which, is, which deals with that insight, I think, that, uh, that, that helps us to order our relation to it in, in the right way. And this is part of that weaning off of it as, as a, 
something that gratifies us eating the earth um, and, and is our source of nutrition and rather sees it for, um, for what it is in, it, in its creaturely dignity um, and, and its way of manifesting God's glory. Um, and so, but I think you're, you, that, that, that issue of privation is key. I mean, this is another episode of the positive, the intellect and studiousness being a, a virtue and vice being a lack, an evil, a deformation of a good thing. And so, and that's one of the things that, uh, uh, that sort of Webster highlights is that um, we are dealing with first and foremost a created nature here. Now, a lot of times, you know, we want to kind of, especially in the reform world, implode all created natures to the point that there is, you know, that there, there's just a complete creation that had a new creation with no continuity to, to, to the resurrection of a body, if you will. Um, and in this case, it's emphasizing that we, we have intelligence. It's a good gift. It has a distinct vocation in our creaturely um, uh, life in, in relation to God and, and everything else. Um, but it has evil in it, right? It, it, is, it is depraved, if you will. Um, so studiousness and curiosity puts it our active, intelligent relations to that which is not known. I mean, that's where he kind of starts. There are movements of intelligence towards new knowledge, movements drawing their power from the creaturely appetite um, to acquire knowledge beyond what is required for the satisfaction of the immediate passing needs. But studiousness and curiosity participate in this movement of knowledge in different ways. Studiousness being its well-ordered temporal enactment curiosity it's a deformation and so studiousness is a strenuous application of the powers of the creaturely intellect the end of which is to come to know something for the first time or to apprehend something under a new aspect or with new interest in some object already known um, and what's peculiar to it's peculiar to us as creature as creatures so one of the things uh, Webster is hitting at here, drawing off of Christ, you know, Christianity, is that intellect doesn't start with the spontaneous um, creation, like Chris was talking about, of the creature. It's caught up in a movement of communication and sign and meaning and reference that we are brought into. And as we're brought into, we're, you know, we're moved by that movement. Um, it is oriented properly towards a well-ordered of our thoughts in congruence with divine purposes and meanings and fulfillment. When it gets deformed, it is a breaking from that. And it is an introduction into that break with a whole bunch of deformities that have basically filled the world of meaning and knowledge and knowing with a bunch of things now that, um, that are added to what we have to come up against as people kind of weaning off of that world impacted by the fall. You know, what, what comes to my mind at this point is uh, if, if uh, this way of uh, thinking is recovered, what would it do for the disciplines, broadly speaking, uh, not simply narrow, narrowly focused on theology, but just, you, you could say, and I think we've talked about this before, that every discipline is, is just applied theology. Yeah. You, know, you know, we're talking about literature or if we're talking about geology. I mean, it, we're just talking about theology sort of uh, making an, an approach to the divine, 
the divine mind from a particular angle. So it seems to me that um, that's, that's kind of that's, that's kind what of medievals meant when they said that theology was the queen of the sciences. Yeah, yeah. But it was the that all of the various sciences could be arranged under theology because all of them are explorations of God's world. Yeah, they're all actually theology. Yeah, yeah. And and I think what happens here, maybe this will help with that question in, in a maybe a, from a different angle, but it, it may uh, help address it. Is one of the things he he starts to hit on is um, studiousness. The, the virtue is a reflective activity, one whose application is subject to the appraisal because it is governed by standards of excellence. And this is something I think that, that is missing from what you just said, Chris, where most of the academic um, disciplines, I mean, it, there can still be some standards of excellence just in terms of, you know, turning in a well-edited, well-written paper, if, that's still, if people still do that, um, or things like that. But this has to do with intellectual virtues and moral virtues. And this is something that he, uh, Webster's going to say, has been severed off from the academic world, uh, you know, of modernity and its break from Christianity, is that, that seeing the intellect tied to um, our, our, uh, our intellectual appetite, and this is something he wants to retrieve, this notion of our appetite, uh, our, des our created desire to know, and its perversion is at the heart of where these vices and virtues get, get fleshed out. And actually, Paul Griffiths, I don't know if you know him, he, he, uh, he was in the news a couple of years ago because he, he, um, he sent a nasty email to, he, he taught at Duke University. Oh, this is coming um, back to me. It's coming back to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah Paul, Paul Griffiths. <laughs> He's funny because if you see him, he looks and talks like Pete Towns and the guitars from The Who. And I think they're from the same area. <laughs> so, But anyway... He, he wrote a great book called, uh, let me see if I get the title right, I, I better look at uh, Intellectual Appetite, A Theological Grammar. And it kind of looks into a lot of this from the Augustinian line, um, all the things involved in cultivating the intellect properly. But anyway, he, he must have been on his game because the administrator wanted him to go to another one of these uh, diversity trainings, political correct talks. And he finally said, look, I've dealt with enough of this stuff you know, it's a waste of my time. <laughs> so he ended up having, sadly, to resign for that. I think he's at the Catholic. I, I think he, he picked something else up afterwards. But he's somebody who, who surely was not, not uh, contaminated by vice that morning. Um, <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was following virtue. <laughs> right. now, another angle on this, going to Augustine, since we're there, is according to Augustine, all true knowledge is mediated through Christ. Because Christ is the Logos, but he is also the light of the world, and through light we see things. Light is the, the physical medium through which we experience most of what we experience in the world. And, um, and while Augustine's understanding of how all that works was not quite ours, uh, he nonetheless took very seriously the idea of Christ as the light of the world, making him the one mediator of true knowledge. All true knowledge comes to us through Christ. Now, now the question that, that I think occurs to me, I think most people at this point, is does this require a conscious uh, faith? Augustine would say no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, 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 and there are mm -hmm. pagans who have real knowledge. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, the, the, the second part of it, it would be yes, in the sense that the, the fuller light that that lights everything 
um, it, is no, it is known in that process, and Augustine would say, put, putting, not eating the earthly as our full nutrition, but, but eating the heavenly, if you will, the manna from heaven. So that, that will give us something different. But yeah, there's that chief among the intellectual standards, Webster writes, of excellence is the requirement of studiousness. This is a dedication of our mental powers um, to relate to the object of study with, by, uh, by holding to the integrity of the object that it's respected as it comes to be known. This is the gift character uh, of, the, the, of what we know. In other words, it's not an imposition of meaning. It's a, it's, a, it's a respecting the integrity. To come to know it is a form of representation of reality, but that representation must accord with that in, inherent order of the object. And this is that logos that Augustine's talking about. There's an inherent intelligibility, um, a created nature, that is given its meaning and sense in its reference to the creator and then relation to all things. So this shape, this sound, this sequence, this conceptual pattern has its full dignity in place within this way of knowing. Um, and this is why Webster would call true studiousness is in, in its first sense a contemplative act. It is contemplating the integrity of the object, its inherent ordering, um, you know, ultimate ends and proximate ends and the reception of the full gift of the dignity of the object. And I think this is something lost. Um, it's all about making, making an object, um, uh, creating an objectivity, um, making, you know, you, you see it now in, in, you know, just regular news cycles. I mean, complete fabrication of, of language and reference in order to create a narrative, if you will, which is just meant to be a reification of something we know to be false just for its rhetorical capacity to persuade wills, right? So uh, l l let me just kind of interject here uh, something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, and that's the nature of the subject-object relationship within the Lagos. So, you know, if, if we think about how people conceive of knowledge, uh, when you don't have this larger framework of the Lagos, then you have a, you've got a, a subject which perceives an object. Now, the problem is, is even in that relation, there's kind of be some kind of faith that there's an actual object out there and that it is a gift. It has a gift character to it. Now, if you remove, uh, you know, sort of the Christian frame, it's hard to speak of things as gifts. You yeah. know, you, you just have to be just a very unusual or quirky person to talk about things in that way. But if you, if you, if you have this larger frame, then you can say, okay, these things are presented to me as gifts. But even, even more, I think, significantly, if getting back to Glenn's point about light, lagas, meaning, so forth, if, if the lagas is the thing that sort of uh, you know, works in all things, holds all things together, is the light of the world, then it's operating in both the subject and the object simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So what you have is this is the subject is recognizing in the object the thing yeah. that's in that that you know makes for the whole process of knowledge possible or the, the way knowledge works possible because there's a kind of recognition in the object of what's in the in the subject. Yeah. Do you get what I'm getting at? Well, and, and I think this is why, I mean, Webster's talking Trinitarianly. This is why you have word and spirit, especially in the Reformed tradition, puts such an ax, a, emphasis on that. It's not, just, uh, 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 the, the, it's not just the objective word. 
Um, but it's the objective word apprehended, not just simply from something without, but by participation in. And this is similar to, I think, the way the classics, I mean, I know Aquinas, I know Augustine often talked about knowing as a participation in the object. Um, it's, not the, it's not the other way of the object merely participating in your subjectivity. It's you being invited into right. its, its, its reality. And I said, so that there is a breakdown there between subject and object that, you know, this isn't Descartes and every, all the problems that came, you know, after that. Um, I think this is, this is something where there's a much richer intimacy um, but between that, because yes, it's the same logos, it's word and spirit are, are in, in, in perfect harmony as, as one. That's right. Um, and, 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 and each, both the subject and the object are participating in the logos in yes. some sense. So this gets back to Glenn's point about, you know, uh, there, is no, there is no apprehension of any kind of truth apart from the logos because the logos is the truth. Yeah. But but then it gets down to this confessional matter. Let me just just quickly get to this because I've known people who confess Christ and are ignorant uh, about many things that they think they know. You've probably come across people like this. I mean, uh, it's it's true for me. <laughs> you know. But then there are people that don't confess Christ that, in at least a, a sort of narrow range, I can say he knows what he's talking about. So how do you make, how do you work with that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. without becoming some kind of universalist or someone who just dismisses the confession of Christ, you know, in faith as non-essential to knowledge? Yeah. That's the, that's the troubling thing for me. Yeah. Well, I, I think what you have on the one hand, I mean, I, I, I think, I think we can keep, uh, we can kind of keep things a little distinct and then bring them back together. Um we all, we all, all human creatures, as creatures, have the endowment of the intellect. And as part of the common gift of creation, that the rain falls on the good and the bad, is the fact that some people have the ability, by grace, a grace, a common grace, to know all kinds of things, oftentimes, and most of the time, more than a lot of Christians. There, there isn't a rich, rich array of of uh, intellectuals at any particular given point in Christianity. You have highlights. We're still reading Augustine, right? We're not, we're not talking, um, and even when I'm talking about as brilliant as John Webster was, he's quoting Augustine, right? Um, so th- this is, there, is, there is this side of things um, um, that it, you don't have, there's nothing, you know, I think John Gershner used to say, <laughs> he said, there's nothing great to having a great intellect. There's nothing like saving about it. Um, right. We can all have it. There is, though, however, that this whoever exercises those things as a common gift and grace um, is doing so under endowments given by the Creator, and their their creaturely wisdom is something that creatures should, I mean, the Christian should read and learn from in the same way you would when your mechanic tells you to do X, Y, and Z, so you don't have to keep going to the mechanic, right? Um, there, there is something about that wisdom and knowledge. Um, that you want to take seriously because that person has been endowed with a gift that is able to unfold and know things because of the logos that lights everyone. Does that mean, though, <coughs> that, you know, um, that particular intellectual, for example, that tells us can write a brilliant history of Western thought could see it in its fuller light? Okay, this is where the person who may not know that he has a right and left hand may still be able to shed some some illuminative wisdom on 
the topic that the person could never come to <coughs> in and of himself as a, just a given natural intellect, right? And that there are going to be idols both in the, the, the person who, who doesn't know the true God, but also have to be weaned off of the Christian who has to continuously bring its thoughts and insights before um, the knowledge of God in Christ to measure the, the length and depth of, of their insight in relation to God. So, I mean, I think what, what we can say there is, is that um, it's not an either or, either, either you're regenerate and therefore you have everything, you don't have to study. <laughs> or, I've, come, I've come across those people oh, and, there's some, have, some, I, and they're some of the most ignorant people I've ever met. <laughs> they are. And, and I think they do. And I think they do a danger. I mean, this is the, this is the point about be, be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. I mean, they do a disservice because they don't discern the times oftentimes, and, and they don't really get the advantage of um, fulfilling their intellectual vocation of knowing, of bringing all things and knowing all things and participating in all things in relationship to their fullness in Christ. So I think what they've done is basically they, they're happy with, you know, they're happy having the cupcake rather than the whole cake, if you will. And um, it doesn't mean they, they, they don't have a share in that full cake. It just means their share and their experience and their ability to share is, you know, limited yeah, to, to yeah, the and once again, this is not a new problem. Yeah. Augustine wrote a book called On the Literal Meaning of Genesis, right. in which he discussed exactly this kind of thing, people who contradicted all sciences, the scientists of his day, didn't use that term, but the, the, the people who had studied the natural world of his day, and they contradicted it because they read something in the Bible, and that meant that they knew everything that there was to know. And he says, you can't do that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, this is probably a good point to kind of wrap things up. We're, believe it or not, we're actually at, at about the time that we normally wrap up. It's, it's kind of gone. It's been kind of a quick talk or a quick discussion. At least, at least it seems so to me because it's been yeah. so, so interesting. Yeah. But uh, you have anything you want to wrap up with, Glenn? Uh, that was a great way to, to, to sort of bring us in. But is there anything else you want to add? No, I, th I think it's an interesting conversation and one that we're undoubtedly going to be coming back to kind of regularly. It, it touches on a lot of themes we've already talked about and undoubtedly we'll continue talking about. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Anything else you want to say, uh, Tom, as uh, you, you bring this into our landing? Uh, I, I think I'll end with this. Is a lot of times for people who listen to this show, they, they, may, they may see us kind of wander into a lot of territory. And I think a lot of times, I mean, I've been trying to think of one of the best ways to put it. It's a combination of thinking Christianly and Christians thinking, right? So on one side, like today, we're trying to do, you know, what is thinking Christianly about this particular thing or that? Um, the intellect, its virtues, its vices, um, you know, its, it's, it's uh, obfuscation by sin and it, it, its illumination by divine light. Um, but on the other hand, we'll have an episode where we completely sat, sound like we're taking it into territory unexplored. Um, should Christians go there? And I think what we're trying to say is these things can go together because we're, we're interested more in the studiousness, not the curiosity um, to, to enhance pride and, and enter terrain. Um, and I think this is what's similar to what Lewis is up to with that initial quote and what the project that Lewis and Tolkien and these other figures were doing is they were 
doing a form of studiousness. Uh, um, they were fulfilling that. And a matter of fact, I'll end with this last thing. Lewis writes, he, he investigates this question in his essay, Christianity and Culture. And in that essay, he's kind of saying, well, is there an advantage? Like, do we get something more spiritually from cultivating, you know, and he's thinking high culture. And he said, well, there are a lot of reasons to think you do, but I can't think of any. Sometimes my Augustinian side wants to say, no, you know, but for a sinner, you know, I'm nothing. And then he does turn it interestingly, but this is my vocation. And in a, in a strange way, he ends up here. The vocation of the intellect is to actually um, fulfill itself in these territories. I think he meant something more limited, his particular vocation, but I think we could widen it. I think all of our vocations as creatures with an intellect should be doing what we're kind of doing here. Right. Well, for that, I mean, we went on the last show that, that one of the things that we, at least I hope that we, we're accomplishing with our show and the different things we do is helping people to be more competent yeah, you know, and uh, I think you know that includes obviously our ability to to see, to reason, to behave, you know, wisely, and uh, and so ho hopefully this this discussion is you know helped to further that. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. Uh, wanted to say uh, one thing before we wrap up, and that is we are working on our website. We were talking with our tech earlier today, uh, before the show began, about how that's coming along. So hopefully in the near future, we'll have it up and running. We haven't forgot about it. We're just trying to make sure that, ev that everything is the way we want it. And, uh, and it, Tom and Glenn and I have actually spent a little time providing some content. And uh, so there's some, some more to work with there. But anyway, uh, that's that. Well, uh, we wish you well, Glenn. Have a safe trip out. I'll be following you in a few days myself. My wife and I are flying out to the West Coast and then up to Moscow the week after you're there for the NSA board meeting. I'm a member of the board. So I'll, get, I'll be able to get some of the, some of the thoughts from the guys uh, while I'm out there on, on how you did. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll only tell you the good things. <laughs> I'm sure they'll all be good. But anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.